So no matter what level of social complexity you are fascinated or interested to know about, there is a wasp to fit that question. There's a wasp for you. There is. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Sarian Sumner. She's a professor of behavioral ecology at University College London. She studies insects to understand their behavior, ecology, evolution, and their role in ecosystems. She's especially fond of wasps and is working hard to give them a PR makeover. As part of these efforts, she co-founded the Big Wasp Survey in 2017, which is a citizen science project to engage the public with social wasps in their backyard. And she's here today to further her WASP PR mission by talking to us about her book, Endless Forms, Why We Should Love Wasps. Sarian, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you for having me. So because the best place to start when there is a big old elephant in the room is to actually just bring up the elephant in the room. So I'm going to say something that will absolutely not surprise you. Like most people, I don't like wasps. And I imagine for you hearing that over and over is a lot like a mathematician hearing over and over the dreaded, I don't like math line. So why don't we like wasps so much? What is it about them? Yeah, I think actually there's probably more people in the world who say they like maths than they like wasps because, you know, wasps are definitely below maths and that. Um, So the reason why people don't like wasps is largely because most people don't know what wasps do for us or do for the planet, do in ecosystems. Um, And the fact that they sting is also a bit of an issue, Um, but it is a very small selection of the wasps that give all the wasps a bad name. So there are over 100,000 species of wasps, but um, you tend to only come into contact with the yellow jackets picnic bothering wasp that comes to your picnics or the beer gardens at the end of the summer. And they get a bit annoying. Even I will admit they're a little bit annoying. Um, and, and it's that wasp-human interface that happens at the time of the year when the wasps are slightly uh, slightly lively that gives wasps a bad rap. Bad rap. But what I really get annoyed about is that the thing that people say about wasps is that they sting. What's the point of wasps? They're pointless. Bees sting. And yet we tend to forgive them. And, you know, people will even feel sorry for a bee if it stings them because they think it's going to die. It's actually only the honeybee that dies when it stings you. Um, So people think that that bees, it's fine. doesn't matter if they sting because people understand that bees are pollinators. Um, And so they forgive them the sting. But for wasps, it's a completely different story. Um, People don't uh, forgive their sting at all because they don't know what they do. I do find it really interesting that there's so many similarities between bees and wasps. And bees are I don't know about universally loved, but definitely way better loved than wasps. Whereas I would say wasps are like the equal other side of that spectrum. And they're very similar in a lot of ways. So I keep trying to rack my brains about like, how did we get to a situation where these two creatures that are on at least a surface level, very similar, have drastically different PR. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's just very much the yin and the yang or the, you know, the Jekyll and the Hyde. They are two sides of the same coin. Um, What I like to tell people is that actually bees are wasps. Bees are just vegetarian wasps because they evolved from a wasp-like ancestor. Um, And so not liking bees, not sorry, not liking wasps means that you actually don't like bees either. (laughs) 
Um, but I think the main thing that, that persuades people to like wasps, or at least to tolerate them, is um, that wasps are nature's pest controllers. So in the same way that we value bees for their pollination services and some of them for their honey, we should be valuing wasps for the pest control that they do because they're hunters. Um, they catch prey to either feed to their brood in the nest if they're a social wasp or to bury in the ground and lay an egg in, paralyzed um, prey if they're a solitary wasp. Um, and by doing so, they are regulating the populations of other insects, other arthropods that we might find almost as irritating as wasps. So I'm thinking of aphids for gardeners and caterpillars for on, on your, your, your cabbages um, or flies. Everyone hates flies. They're a bit pesky, aren't they? Um, and even spiders. I think if there's one arthropod that people possibly hate as much as wasps, it is spiders. So there are lots of wasps that hunt spiders. So a world without wasps would mean there'd be a lot more flies, a lot more caterpillars, aphids and spiders. So that can only be a reason to like wasps. I'm assuming the spider PR people will have words with you later about that. <laughs> spiders are cool too. I'm not going to knock the spiders. <laughs> so when did you start, start liking wasps or have you always been a big fan of wasps? Uh, no. So actually, that's one of my biggest confessions that I always tell people is that I I, I I used to hate bugs, actually. I used to hate all kind of, well, not hate them, but I used to be a bit squeamish and I would be the one to not be able to remove the spider, the big spider from the downstairs loo or something like that. <laughs> Um, and so it's purely accidental um, that I came to uh, fall in love with wasps. I'm thinking about it now. This is a very strange thing to say. Uh, so, so the reason I started studying wasps was because um, they were a brilliant model organism studying the evolution of sociality um, and social behavior. And so I, 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 I was offered this PhD position where it was addressing, it was on exactly what I wanted to do. It was on animal behavior. So studying the behavior of, of animals in their natural environment, trying to understand how and why they evolved. And it was social behavior, which is really fascinating. Um, and yet it was wasps that, that were the study organism. And I remember at the time saying to my to-be PhD supervisor, oh, but I don't like wasps and I don't want to get stung. And he said, oh, no, no, don't worry. These wasps don't really sting. And, and in a way, He's sort of true, but actually they do sting. Of course, most wasps do sting. Um, but I, I, I started working on these hobble wasps from Southeast Asia, um, which are uh, beautiful little wasps. They're like little fairies that float through the through, through the through the air. They live in very small colonies, um, so four or five individuals. They are um, incredibly easy to work with because you don't need to wear any protective gear. Um, they don't fly at you. They they don't attack you um they can sting so he was wrong my phd supervisor was was had deceived me to some extent um they did sting but only when they get you on a very sort of uh delicate bit of your skin like you know the underside of your arm or um on your fingertip um but so they are actually the brilliant a brilliant entry-level wasp um so if anyone's considering a career in wasp research then i thoroughly recommend you look to the the hover wasps of southeast asia and then it was just kind of by watching them in the fields. And I do remember um, very clearly, and within a few months of starting my PhD, I went to Malaysia and to study the, the insect, to study the wasps. 
And we were looking at their social behavior and the social rank and trying to work out um, how many uh, females on the nest were actually egg layers. So these wasps live in very simple societies. Um, so they're not like your honeybee or your yellow jacket wasp, where there's a queen and a committed band of thousands of workers. Um, these very small societies are, of wasps are much more like a meerkat society, for example, um, a cooperative breeding society where all the individuals in the group are capable of becoming reproductives. And yet they don't all do that. One of them becomes the queen and lays all the eggs and the others stay at home and help. And so one of the big questions we were trying to examine and look at was why should an individual stay at home and help when they could actually go off and found their own colony and lay their own eggs and be their own queen of their own nest. Um, so we were doing lots of uh, um, uh, experiments to, to test uh, various ideas on what might explain that. Um, and it was just, uh, I, I very clearly remember the eureka moment of, of realising that actually wasps were quite a cool thing. I was lying on the, the forest floor, the jungle floor in, um, uh, in this uh, uh, Malaysian rainforest, and um looking up at this nest, which was literally inches from my nose. Um, and I was watching the wasps um, that we'd painted. So we knew exactly how old they all they all were. And we knew that we'd marked them from the point they'd been born. So we knew their whole life. Um, and I was just swept, swept up in their soap opera of their, you know, the way they interact with each other and knowing who is who and who the queen was and what the, the next in line. Because if the queen dies, the next oldest worker will become the new queen. So you can remove the queen and see what happens, see see how, how it unfolds and whether there's any conflict or not. So that's kind of how I got into them. Um, and then after my PhD on wasps, I actually went and studied ants. Um, again, in the tropics, but this time in the near tropics in Panama. And ants are really cool, especially leaf cutting ants, which is what I was studying. They're super cool ants. Um, and they don't sting. So that's rather nice. Um, but actually, after two years of ants, I realized that my calling lay with the wasps. And I also, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to go back to the wasps was not only because of the science questions that you could use to uh, use them to address, which you can't use ants for, um, but it was because they are such an overlooked facet of nature, not just, they're not just maligned by the general public. Scientists don't like wasps either. Um, you know, social insect scientists tend to favour studying bees and ants rather than wasps. Um, so I just felt that they were they were being overlooked and they were the underdog of the insect world. And I kind of like to put, I kind of like to give the underdog underdogs a bit of a foot up if I can. So yeah, that that's that that's kind of the rest is history. I found it really interesting that I mean, I think everyone knows that, like we said, the elephant in the room, a lot of people don't like wasps. But I found it very interesting that there's not as much research about them, that there is so much research about ants and bees. And uh they have a PR problem also in science. I didn't sort of make that assumption because quite often there's a lot of scientists studying things that people don't like. For example, I think there's quite a lot of research on spiders. As you said, not a lot of people like spiders, but there doesn't seem to be a sort of absence of spider research. So I was quite quite surprised uh, to read in your book that there is, by comparison, um, a sort of lack of research about wasps, especially um, also understanding from the book how many varieties there are. So it seems like it should be such a rich vein of science. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we calculated, we, we published a paper a few years ago. Um, and it's called Why We Love Bees and Hate Wasps. <laughs> so if any of your listeners are interested, it is open access and they can download it. So Why We Love Bees and Hate Wasps. And in that paper, we looked at why people love bees and hate wasps. And we found out that, um, well, firstly, that people genuinely do hate wasps and love bees um, and that the language they use to describe them is is very emotive um, and that they don't like wasps because they don't understand what they do, whereas they do like bees because they know what they do. But we also looked at the scientists' efforts into research on bees and wasps. And I think bees have 40 times more research effort put into them, wow. um, which given there's only 22,000 species of bees and there's a hundred over a hundred thousand species of wasps. In fact, there's probably uh, at least five times that because wasps are so understudied and so undescribed. Um, so yeah, the the effort um that has been put into wasp research is tiny. So from a wasp researcher perspective, I have to say it's actually quite nice because <laughs> you're very unlikely to get scooped. Mm. Whereas if you work on the honeybee or the fire ants or something really sexy and popular, there's a good chance that your 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 uh, your research might get uh, published by someone else before you've actually finished your experiment. So that's another good reason to study wasps. <laughs> Less racing to the finish line. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I do want to talk about uh, obviously the wasps themselves, because there was a ton in here that I sort of vaguely knew in kind of whispers, but was surprised by the wide variation and a lot of the details. Um, so as an example, I'd love to talk about some of the different varieties of hunting strategies that wasps have, because I think a lot of people, especially people with an interest in science, have heard of some of the like stars with weird hunting strategies, like the um, like the zombification ones uh, that mm -hmm. can go and kind of zombify other insects. Um, but some of the details in the different hunting strategies I found super interesting. So maybe let's start with the uh, zombification hunters, and then maybe we can skip and talk around some of the other hunting strategies that might be a little less well known. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So it's the Emerald Jewel Wasp, which um, is the famous zombifier. To be honest, most of them zombify. I mean, zombify, I mean, it's a very, it, it grabbed the headlines that when when the scientists first published the paper, go, zombific, zombifying wasps. Um, so basically, the reason it's called a zombie is that so the, the, the Emerald Jewel Wasp hunts cockroaches. And the wasp is quite small and cockroaches can be quite large. Um, and so the problem is that once she's uh, she found her prey, she has to paralyze it and take it back to uh, a burrow, a nest, um, and then bury it in the ground uh, in, or in the nest and lay an egg on it and then seal it up. And then the egg hatches and into a larva when the mother's gone, well, well and truly gone. And then the egg and the larva, the small baby larva, cute baby wasp, will then uh, feast on the paralyzed cockroach uh, for the next few days to weeks. So, and, and of course, the cockroach is alive. It's just paralyzed. Um, and so that's actually the normal cycle for most hunting wasps, these solitary hunting wasps, that they hunt prey, paralyze them, transport them back to a burrow, lay an egg on them, seal them up and say goodbye. That's sort of the, there's no parental care. That's the end of the parental care. <laughs> But the really um, funny thing about these uh, the the um, jewel wasp is the way that she paralyzes the cockroach. So it's big, 
She can't carry it. So she has to basically find another way to get it to her burrow. And what she does is she delivers two very, uh, two, two clear stings. So one is to the thorax, so the main body of the cockroach, which basically stops it squirming around. Um, and then that means that she can get a very precise sting into the brain, um, delivering uh, a, a venom, which is rich in neurotoxins, which paralyzes the, uh, the cockroach such that it, it can still walk, but it has no free will, so it can't run away. Um, and so then what she does is she basically leads the cockroach by its antenna to its death chamber, <laughs> its tomb, <laughs> um, and then buries it and lays the egg and, and the rest is, is wasp history. Um, so that's the zombification. So, but I mean, in a way, you know, mo- most of these um, uh, hunting wasps, they all, they really all have to have a very potent venom to be able to paralyze a prey. So if you think about it, what what does it take to paralyze a cockroach? What kind of neurotoxins do you need to 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 disable its its neuronal system? Um, and and also to be able to uh, stop the um, the paralyzed uh, insect itself trying to its immune system kicking in. Um, so the venom has got all this really incredible biochemical properties, um, but it's but. But other other species of hunting wasps hunt spiders or flies or um, crickets or you know bees, and so they have to have a venom that is specific and bespoke to paralysing that particular dealing with the physiology of that particular prey. Um, so that's what I re- I think is really fascinating about these solitary wasps and the the content of their venom and how little we know about the content of their venom is quite remarkable, given that there's over 33,000 species of solitary hunting wasps that do this, hunt the prey, paralyze it. So that there is so much more to learn about what, what exactly is inside that venom. But we have learned a little bit about it. Um, there are two, and, and in the medicinal, the, the medical sciences are starting to show interest in wasp venom. Um, and there are two uh, two. Uh, chemicals or t- two properties of the venom, which are, have got the particular interest of the medical world. And those are bradykinins, which actually we use in hospitals already um, because they cause vasodilation. And that means that in intensive care patients, they can get drugs pumped around the body really quickly. Um, and that's exactly what um, uh, a, a, a wasp needs to do if it wants to get venom pumped around the body really quickly um, of, the, of its prey. It needs to to make everything, all the muscles relax. Um, so there's no surprise there. So that's bradykinin. And uh, then the other component of medicinal interest uh, in the venom of, of hunting wasps is um, mastoparins, which is a peptide. Um, and it has been shown to potentially be able to target uh, be, be possible use in um, treating cancer. Uh, and the, the reason is that it can be, if you can get it to the cancer cells, then it causes them to hemorrhage and explode. Um, so there is sort of clinical research, not, not clinical level, but sort of still labs-based research going into looking how to get that those mastoparins extracted from wasp venom to cancer cells to look at the, the, the potential that they have for um, treating cancer. So I think that's kind of cool. And given the tiny, tiny amount of research that's gone into solitary wasp venom, I think if only we put a bit more money into it, a bit more work into it, uh, we would we would discover all sorts of incredible properties of this venom that could be useful to us. 
found it interesting too, that it's not just the venom um, that has a lot of diversity. There's also hunting strategies because uh, as you mentioned, some of the wasps have very, very specific prey. And so a lot of their hunting strategies have evolved or developed over time to be so specific to that prey. I mean, the, the cockroach is a great example, but I'm thinking also of um, I think there was a wasp that hunts quite a large caterpillar and it can't just sting it once. It has to kind of get it in multiple segments because of the nature of the caterpillar, which again is, um, it's always interesting to see how creatures evolve such specific strategies. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, so you're talking about, so this, this is the uh, Ammophila hunting um, digger wasp, which uh, the, the descriptions of how it captures, so it's a beautiful big wasp. Um, there's lots of species that live around the world. So probably wherever you are, you'll be able to find them in sandy soils and heathlands. Um, they're beautiful. They're like supermodel wasps with beautiful, long petioles, very thin waist, long thin waist, um, and often a little red abdomen quite big, sort of a couple of centimetres, and they're solitary and they hunt caterpillars. And um, often the caterpillar is quite large. And uh, in, re- in writing my book, I really enjoyed reading these old out-of-print books written in the late 1800s and early 1900s when being a naturalist and describing nature and its in minutiae detail was a very respectable um profession um and one of my favorite books that i i i love reading is uh, is the works of um jean-henri faber the french uh, school teacher who was an incredible naturalist and he describes he he wrote a lot about wasps and he describes in great detail how uh, his observations of how these ammophila digger wasps sting and paralyze paralyze these caterpillars and the fact that one sting in the middle doesn't really work at all because the, the of the way that the, the the nervous system of the caterpillar is set up that the different segments have different ganglia and you have to paralyze um several of the ganglia across the body in order to paralyze it completely but you also don't want to paralyze it in the in the uh, paralyze the brain because in this case unlike the jewel wasp if the digger wasp the digger wasp venom is too strong for the for the for the caterpillar's brain and it would just kill it so what she does is um she sort of chews or gently massages the heads of the caterpillar <laughs> and this is astonishing i'm not sure many people have observed it since john henry faber so this is in the, ni- the early 1900s um, and no one takes time to observe that kind of thing these days. You know, who's going to sit and watch a, a, a peculiar wasp and, and see which segments of the caterpillar it stings? Um, but it's only because of these uh, natural history observations that um, that we know we, that we have this information. And, and we really do, you know, in terms of particularly in the solitary wasps, in terms of the research um, that has been done on solitary wasps since, you know, since the early uh, 1900s, there's so little because they're just massively overlooked people just don't even people don't even know they've seen a solitary wasp they they assume it's a bee or a fly um so yeah it's it uh the the uh the the hunting strategies are really diverse i think there's probably a lot more diversity there that we don't know about one of my favorites by the way is the uh the bee wolf um Philanthus, uh, which uh, again is very common in south of England and the parts that I, I live in. Uh, and what this does is it hunts bees, as the name suggests, and it carries the bee back to its burrow. Um, but of course, in order to, uh, when you're going to bury your um, your offspring in the ground, 
which is rich in microbes and, you know, fungi and viruses and bacteria, um, you don't really want to uh, leave it unprotected, especially if you're going to bury it with a paralyzed insect. And bees in particular are super messy, a super microorganism rich. <laughs> Lots of stuff loves to grow on bees. Um, and so what the bee wolf does is she provides several layers of defense to ensure that when she buries that bee, that paralyzed bee in the ground and lays her baby wasp egg on it, that that, that bee is not going to go moldy or um, cause the, the, the wasp larva to, to become diseased. And so what she does is, first of all, she licks it all over. So she basically embalms the bee. And that's her first line of defense in, uh, fun against fungi, which might be underground um, in the burrow. And then what she does is she, from her antenna, so this isn't from her, her venom this time, it's actually from her antenna. Um, she has these mutualistic fungi, uh, 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 sorry, bacteria, uh, streptomyces, which she uh, releases from her antenna into the cocoon. Uh, of the embalmed bee. And of course, streptomyces produces streptomycin, which is one of the really most important antibiotics that we use in medicine. Um, and that that helps keep the capsule of this paralyzed bee free of uh, bacteria and, and fungi. Um, and then my favorite bit is that the most vulnerable stage is actually before the egg has hatched into the wasp larva, because actually once the larva is, is, is mobile, it can wander around and munching on the bee and it's, it spreads the streptomycin around its little cocoon, keeping it all nice and clean. Um, but before then, when it's an egg, which is only a few days, but it's a very vulnerable stage. Um, and so what the egg does is it gives off this toxic farts of nitrous <laughs> oxide, which is a fungicide. And so I think the whole package and the bee wolf and that it is phenomenal. I, my, my, I didn't know any of this, any of anything about these, these strategies and the, the, all the, all the incredible tools that have evolved in these solitary wasps before I wrote my book. And because I've been so focused on the so social wasps, that's all I cared about. So I, I, you know, that the honey that the the um the the bee wolf is definitely one of the most impressive um examples uh that i that i've read about and actually one of the few examples of a solitary wasps medicine cabinet that has really been interrogated um and it's all i think it, the reason why this has happened and there's this group in germany who's produced all this research the reason why they've been able to do this is because of those early naturalist observations. And again, it was Jean-Henri Faber who observed in his bell-shaped uh, observation chamber, which he could see into and observe the insects inside it. Um, so he, he really took sort of natural history observations a whole step forward in doing this. He was the one who first described how the, um, the 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 bee wolf treats its prey, and and he observed how um, he uh, that the bee uh, the wasp squeezes the bee to exude the honey from its crop, um, and and he sort of you know crazy ideas about why this might happen. And, and the other really funny thing about Hen um, Faber's books is that he was because obviously it's just after sort of Darwin, so Darwinism was really coming in, and many people were. Uh, 
both the, there were like two camps that are either very critical of, of Darwin, a very skeptical or or complete embraces of it, of of his um theory of natural selection. And Faber was completely anti-Darwinism. <laughs> and so he was sort of his book is full of these rants of saying, if I were a Darwinian follower, I would think that this had been selected for over evolutionary time. Well, I am not, and I do not believe this. And he has this enormous rant about. <laughs> What, what peculiar explanations for why things might have evolved without using the word evolved at all. <laughs> <laughs> sort of goes around himself in order to make a contrary argument, I guess, sometimes just yeah, the contrary. <laughs> definitely, definitely. <laughs> um, I definitely want to talk about the different societies wasps have. So as much as I would love to talk about solitary wasp uh, for the whole hour, let's talk about the different types of wasp society because there's so much interesting stuff here as well. Um, I think maybe the best place to start is uh, I, I think most people who aren't scientists and don't study insects might have some basic assumptions that all of these societies kind of function basically the same, um, which is they're very hierarchical. There's one queen, um, what we think of as a sort of standard beehive or standard uh, anthill, but there's actually quite a bit of diversity in a society and also different scales of society. There's these really big ones and also uh, smaller ones. So can you maybe give us a quick taste of the variety that one can expect to find in wasp societies? Yes. I mean, this is, I mean, I could talk for hours on this, so just <laughs> have to shut me up. Um, one of the reasons why wasps are such a brilliant model organism is because of the diversity of societies that they share, that they provide. Just to put this in perspective, everyone thinks that the most impressive societies you can find in the natural world are in the ants. Um, you know, you can have millions of individuals living across several domes. If you think about leaf cutting ants, you know, they can have it in half, 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 it feels like half a forest is just one colony. It's absolutely enormous colonies and only one queen. And it's all, you know, incredible uh, um, uh, co coordination society. But actually, the ants only evolve sociality once and they are all highly complex societies. They all have, all, with very few exceptions, they all almost all have um, a queen and worker caste, which are uh, determined during development. So depending, and this is the same for the, for, the for the honeybee as well, depending on what food they're given or what treatment they're given by the workers when they're developing as a larva, um, they will develop irreversibly into either a worker or a queen um, and from a, quite an early larval stage, such that when they emerge as an adult, they're committed to being a queen or a worker and they can't change. Um, and so in, in many ways, you know, the ants, they yeah, sure, they are absolutely incredible, but actually slightly boring, you know, they're super organismal, they're kind of these amazing societies, but they can't really tell us much about how those incredible societies evolved. Um, and the wonderful thing about wasps is that we have this full spectrum of uh, levels of social complexity. 
um, which we think might offer offer us insights into the kind of the process of social evolution. So actually, the ones that I started studying for my PhD, um, the hover wasps in Malaysia, are what we call facultatively social, which means that they can choose to live in a group or they can choose to live alone because they all every individual has the potential to mate, to develop her ovaries, to lay eggs, and to be a queen. Um, and it's just the circumstances, um, the ecological constraints that would mean that she stays at home and, and helps uh, raise the offspring of her mother instead. Um, and so those facultative, that w- where group living is a choice rather than a fate, um, that's likely to be one of the, well, we know it's the simplest type of group living and it may well be one of the first stages that um, this sociality would have had to had to had to be um, in order to evolve these these complex superorganismal societies. Um, so those are the simplest kinds of societies with only a very small number of individuals and where castes are behavioral, so there are, there are no physiological differences um, that limits reproduction in any way for any individuals, and there's no morphological differences. So whoever is the queen um is sometimes a bit bigger but not always sometimes it's a little bit smaller she's often uh the oldest individual because they're quite a age seems to be a really important convention in lots of these very simple group living societies where all the individuals are um totipotent they're all capable of reproduction so having a convention for repla- for replacing your queen if she dies is a really good way of minimizing conflict um, and costs to all the individuals in the society. Um, so so the this sort of age-determined cue um appears to be quite prevalent in lots of these very simple, simple societies. So the facultatively um social species where they have a choice is the simplest um type of societies. Um, and then the, the next innovation in social evolution is losing the ability to live alone. So losing that facultative sociality and becoming obligate, so, obligately social, which means that um, even if you have the potential to mate and develop your ovaries and, and every, every individual can do that, there is something that is limiting your ability or the, the the success that you're likely to achieve by nesting alone. Um, and so you always have to live in a group. <clears throat> now, the first stages of a nest founding might be might be that you are on your own. Um, and we often get individual females founding a nest on their own and rear it doing the building of the nest and the rearing of all the first brood. But as soon as those brood emerge, as they, they will become her workers. And then normally she won't leave the nest after that. Um, and so what you, what ends up happening is it builds up as a, a mate, ma- a matrifilial society where you've got the queen who is the mother of the workers and the workers are therefore helping raise relatives. They're helping raise their siblings, which are mostly female at this stage of the colony cycle. Um, so that's kind of, and, and, and so these types of societies are typical of Polistes paper wasps, which you get in, um, not in the UK, but you do get them, um, in, uh, Southern Europe. And also they are found all over the US and into parts of Canada. Um, and they're the ones that build these open nests where you, you'll see them on houses and you, like the set, you can see into the hexagonal cells. If you look up into them, you'll see the eggs and the larvae. And there might be anything like, 
like sort of from 10 to 30 wasps or so on these nests. And depending on the environment, they can get much bigger as well. Um, like to up to 200 wasps. Um, but what's incredible, actually, when you see these societies and they're with 100 or so wasps, uh, you when you think that every single wasp on that nest has the potential to be a queen, and yet there is only one queen ordinarily, there's only one queen at any one time. Um, and so how do they regulate uh, the reproduction in that society such that there is only one queen and why do they do it? Um, and it's because it's those species in particular, the Polistes wasps, which have really given us in really important insights into um, the origins of group living and origins of, of eusociality, where we have uh, queens and workers with overlapping generations um, helping and, and having this cooperative brood care. Um, so those, the, so I've spent a lot of time studying polistes, um, and they are, they're just beautiful. They're, these are the kind of, you know, there's the, the, the soap, it was the soap opera of those hover wasps that really bewitched me at first in, in the wasp world. But actually, I then graduated onto polistes, which are much bigger and much more, they do properly stink. I have to confess, they do properly sting. Um, but their soap operas are so much more dramatic. And, and what's really interesting is that um, they do follow this kind of age-determined hierarchy. Um, certainly lots of the species that live in the temperate environments the queen is always the oldest and if she dies the oldest worker will then become the queen and there's very little conflict over that over who who that should be once the queen has has, has died um but in the tropics where i've done a lot of my polistes work in panama in particular um the nests are quite different um and uh what happens in these nests is that if the queen dies um there's a huge fight and they, the fights can go on for a week or so. Um, and it's a it's a subset of the wasps on the nest who will fight. And the other lot will just carry on business as usual, ignoring the fact that their sisters are having this huge fight where they literally sting each other to death. They, there, are, uh, there are what we call falling fights where two wasps will be, their, their bodies will be completely in, uh, wrapped around each other and they'll be stinging each other and they'll fall to the ground and they'll have this tumbling fight. And, and sometimes one, one will die. Um, so to have a fight like that, to be queen, must mean that it's a really big prize. It's really wor it's worth laying your life down if, if you've got a chance of being the queen. Um, and, and that's such a different type. So that's a conflict way of resolving the, the queen succession, which is contrasting to this more convention-based way of the temperate polistes. Um, and we're not entirely sure why this is different, because to all intents and purposes, there's the wasps are the same. They're the same genus. They have the same uh, reproductive potential. Um, they live in the same kind of societies. They're saying the nests look the same, just a bit bigger. But what is different in the tropics is that these nests, the nesting cycle has no um, seasonal constraints. So that means that um, it, there's never really an end. So in, in a temperate region, when it gets to the end of the uh, the summer and the autumn, the nest uh, comes to an end and the sexuals um, will go off and, and hibernate. The female, mated females will go off and hibernate and everyone else dies. Um, and that doesn't happen in the tropics. Uh, what happens is that a group of females from the nest will just fission off and form another nest nearby. Um, and so the constraints, the environmental constraints are very different and the nests can live. In fact, the, the family groups can persist for a lot longer than they can in temperate regions.
Um, sorry, I'm going on a long time about it. I told you I could talk for a long time about these guys. So just to speed things up a bit. So those are the, sort of the obligate um, social, the simplest obligate societies where every individual can be reproductive, but only one is. And they have these different methods of conventional conflict over who's going to be the new queen. Um, but then the next innovation in social evolution is the loss of reproductive potential, such that some or all of the workers will lose the potential to either mate or develop their ovaries or both. And one of the species that does this that I've been studying is called Metapolybia in uh, Trinidad. Um, and they they nest, they build these nests that look a bit like cow pats, like <laughs> just literally splats of mud on the undersides of um, houses or on, on tree trunks. Um, and they're really interesting because their colonies are much bigger um, so there can be uh, hundreds of individuals typically. They're quite small wasps and they, they're not they're not very stingy and they're quite nice to work on. But what's really interesting is that any wasp, when she first emerges as an adult, can become a queen. She can develop her ovaries, she can mate. But as she gets older, and by old, I mean literally two weeks, three weeks old, she appears to lose the ability to uh, to become the queen. So we've done these experiments where we remove all the old wasps or all the all the young wasps and see who um, see what happens. And they basically, if you remove all the wasps, six or all the old wasps and the queen, then some of the young ones will become the new queen. But if you remove all the young wasps and the queen and leave a bunch of old wasps, none of them become the queen. <laughs> <laughs> and they either just leave the nest or they wait for uh, another brood, another uh, female to emerge and that youngest work, work youngest, youngest female will then become the queen. So so this stage in social evolution and this sort of form of social complexity, this sort of intermediate stage, is defined by this loss of reproductive potential. Um and how and why that happens is 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 one of the key, you know interesting things um that we're trying to work out and then the final final it's not the final but you know at the, at the far end of the spectrum the next innovation is to uh evolve a mechanism whereby caste is committed um and determined during development and then you have much more control the society has is much more regulated because you can't just take over as queen if you're a worker because you are physiologically limited to being a worker um and and the typical thing is that you can't mate and if you can't mate you can't lay female eggs you can just lay male eggs but you can't be a, a queen a functional queen and so it's that 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 sort of lifetime commitment um, or developmental commitment to being a queen or a worker is what defines a kind of sort of the, the transition to um, what's well, a major transition in evolution to evolving um, a super organismal society. Um, and that's what the yellow jacket wasps and the hornets, those are super organismal societies. So they are just as super and incredible and complex in terms of their sociality as the honeybees and um, um, the uh, the leaf cutting ants and the the fire ants and 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 all those other other ants that people love. So there is the full spectrum. So no matter what level of social complexity you are fascinated or interested to know about, there is a wasp to fit that question. There's a wasp for you. There is. <laughs> Um, it's really interesting to me that age is uh, the sort of biological factor in 
different areas, both in a sort of Q-based system to take over being queen. It's very orderly, feels very British. Um, <laughs> and also in things like you in the more complex society where age is the factor that means you lose access to potentially some of that. Um, it's obviously a very sort of straightforward mechanism. But again, as someone who didn't know that much about wasps, it never occurred to me that that could be the mechanism at play. Um, it's it's quite interesting. Is that also true in other um, creatures with different types of societies? Or is that yeah. something that kind of wasps have primarily? Uh, no, no. I mean, actually, age is a really good regulator of jobs in, in society. So any beekeeper will know this, that the young workers tend to stay in the nest and do the, what we call their we call them the nurses. They look after the brood um, and they they do the nest maintenance and tidying things up and building new cells. Um, and then as they get older, they will then transition to becoming foragers um, and they'll go out and do the foraging. And that makes total sense because um, as you get older, you're less you're less valuable, really. You know, you've served at least some of your life as usefulness in helping raise brood inside the nest, in the safety of the nest. But actually going out foraging is really risky because you're exposed to predators, to disease, to bad weather, to humans swatting you. <laughs> um, and so if all if young work, if 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 as soon as you emerge from your pupil cell, you went out foraging um, and you got killed on day two or day one, then actually your um efforts, your your service to the colony, your your um the um, amounts of um fitness that you have generated by by feet by 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 helping rear your relatives because you're passing on your genes by raising relatives uh will be zero whereas if you've spent two weeks uh helping rear your siblings and then the, the first then on you know day 15 you go out foraging for the first day and you get swatted by a human or eaten by a bird then that's not such a bad thing because you've actually you've actually passed on some of your genes indirectly by putting that um, effort into helping raise offspring. So aid, we call it age polyethism. It's a very good and very common uh, mechanism for regulating uh, the different jobs within a society. Um, so, at, you know, age across the board is always very, it's a very good predictor for what kind of jobs uh, different individuals might do. So this task partitioning um, amongst workers within societies, but it's only the really big complex societies that tend to have this division of labour within the worker to caste. If you look at a... Um, uh, sort of these polices paper wasps they're often they will do everything they will do the feeding of the brood they'll do the foraging they'll do everything um and so there might be a the the age effect actually is more that if you're more dominant um in these simple societies you you kind of want to be on the nest maintaining your position in the dominance hierarchy which is very much um you know the a bites b b bites c c bites d and so on it you never it's it's a it's a linear hierarchy normally um and so in order to maintain your place in the hierarchy you want to be on the nest as much as you can um and that means less foraging, but you have to fight for your position to, to be able to do that. And of course, if you manage to get higher up the hierarchy, then you are also uh, less likely to get um, exposed to all the risks that come with foraging. Yeah, I was so age, say, yeah, there's like a value of being closer to the nest because it's probably generally a safer position to yes, be exactly. in. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, age is a really important factor. So 
Um, as you sort of mentioned, uh, as the societies get simpler, it sounds like, and I'm not sure if this is a hard and fast rule, that the roles basically get more generalist, that the individuals will pass in and out of roles, setting aside the queen for a second, um, but like the worker roles. Um, presumably, it's not as rigid for the roles or the process that you take through these roles if your society is simpler. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the workers in these simpler societies tend to be able to do anything. They're like Jacqueline's of all trades. Jacqueline's because they're all female. <laughs> um, so yeah, they 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 are able to transition and do different jobs um, at any time. Now, you know, we we know from uh, Adam Smith and you know the, rev- the the revolution, the industrial revolution, which was sort of the 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 um, the the birth of uh, factories and the factory line where individual people along the factory line would do different jobs. So some would, you know, put the lids on the jars, the other ones would fill the jars and and the other ones would make the jars. Um, That we know that people are more efficient. If if you get get good at a task, if you become a specialist, you get good at your task. Um, And so that was one of the ideas that actually that's why you should have a division of of tasks amongst individuals within the society because you get more, you get better at your task. But when societies are really small, you can't really afford to have individuals become so specialised, particularly if they are less able then to switch to another task. Um, and, and especially, you know, if you've only got a colony of five or ten individuals and three of them go out foraging and two of them get killed from the rainstorm and only one that comes back and they've only got one forager and the others the others on the nest well we're, we're nurses we can't possibly go out foraging yet we're not old enough so there has to be some plasticity there and even in the really complex societies like you know in the honeybee for example we know that if you um if you remove all the work or, or the foragers from a honeybee colony then the nurses will transition to to more rapidly like they become precocious foragers in that they will switch to that task. So there has to be flex- flexibility. So it, so age is a first proxy, but it's not a deterministic state. Right. So it just basically makes it less um, fragile. Uh, yes, exactly. It gives it robustness and resilience. Yeah. I mean, I could keep talking about wasp society for a long time and it sounds like you could too but i do <laughs> want uh to talk about a couple of other things so um, i'm gonna set wasp society aside and i'm just gonna let everybody know that if you want to get even more information about really cool wasp society things just read the book it's awesome uh but we're not going to talk about it <laughs> as much as i might like like to um i do want to talk uh a little bit about some of the research about the kind of practicality of wasps from a a sort of self-serving human position. Because one of the things we talked about uh, at the beginning of this conversation was the PR problem wasps have. And uh, we posited that one of the reasons for that is that people don't find wasps useful. They sting a lot and we don't see a lot of utility in them. Whereas BPR is everybody knows they're pollinators. Everybody knows we need them. So we feel more fondly about them even when they sting us. Um, so can you talk a little bit about some of the research or the ways that people are thinking we could potentially um, utilize wasps in the same way that human societies have been utilizing bees for quite a while? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, 
This is a good question. And um, this is the most important part of this conversation. So if any of your listeners are thinking of tuning out now, please don't yet. <laughs> um, so it all, I mean, the main, the main thing that we need to be thinking about in terms of how we can harness what wasps do is their predation power. So their powers as pest controllers. Um, and in fact, we do already do this, to be fair. So I have to say, most of my book and my all of my almost all of my research has been focused on the stinging wasps, the aculeates. But actually there are only 34,000, 35,000 species uh, are described of the stinging wasps. Um, the other 70 odd thousand species of described wasps are actually parasitoids, um, which don't have stings. They have ovipositors, which they lay their eggs down their little tube uh, into um, a larva or a, a, be a beetle larva or a caterpillar, um, and then it, which is in situ. Um, and then the uh, the same process as the hunting wasps happens is that the egg is laid on the on the prey and it hatches and then devours the the caterpillar or the the larva that they they've been laid on. Um, and so that is a, is a very effective way of pest control. So there are. A number of parasitoid wasps that have been, um, well, uh, almost almost semi-domesticated, really, um, for their roles as, as biocontrol agents. Um, and there are big factories around the world, uh, particularly in areas uh, where there are huge multi-national uh, kind of um, huge uh farming communities not not even communities are huge farming businesses that have as far as the eye can see it's just you know sugarcane or maize um i'm thinking of brazil <laughs> uh and and in countries like that where the the farming system is ha has these very big organizations that can afford to produce and farm their own they had factories that produce these parasitoids um and then they release them into the fields so they don't have to use pesticides they use parasitoids instead which is good um but the downside of that is that um, these kind of parasitoids are just not really very accessible to your average farmer, particularly subsistence level farmers um, in developing countries. So parasitoid wasps are great. And, and in fact, you, you, know, you, you, your listeners, they can buy, you can go online, you can buy your parasitoid wasps uh, to kill thrips on your plants or fungus gnats or even clothes moths you know you just buy a little bit of card it looks like a bit of cardboard it comes in the post it's got some eggs on it which are parasitoid wasps and you chuck it in your wardrobe and these tiny little microscopic wasps come out they'll find the moths lay their eggs and kill the moths um, and by the time all the moths have died the the parasitoid wasps, there'll be no more prey. And so therefore the wasps die as well. So it's not like you're going to have plagues of wasps in your cupboards. Um, they will all die out. And that's the beautiful thing about these biocontrol agents is that they are, they're really, they're really effective when you've got pests, uh, uh, the pests that they parasitize. Um, and then after the pests gone, the wasps have gone as well. So this, so in that respect, wasps as biocontrol agents are already big business um, around the world, both for domestic use and for agriculture. Um, but the idea that hunting wasps and the social hunting wasps as well, so the stinging wasps could be useful as biocontrol agents is um, rather unexplored, even though it's actually not that new. Um, so I found accounts of uh, from the late 1800s um, of, again, these 
naturalists' uh, writings where they talk about how um, on big estates, all these, you know, big fancy grand estates in England, that all the wasp nests were removed. And within a few weeks, it was like plagues of flies everywhere. And they that that really shows, it's sort of the first experimental evidence, really, that um, uh, wasps can really be very effective in controlling insect populations um, and how important they are. And since then, there have been uh, a few experiments on that uh, more recently than the 1900s uh, and uh, where they've removed, so particularly in places like Hawaii where uh, yellow jacket wasps are an invasive species. So they get really, they're really out of, uh, out of order. They cause lots of ecological damage. Um, and there is a study where these uh, scientists removed all the nests they could find. And then they found that the, the populations of flies and spiders um, shot up afterwards. So wasps definitely particularly social wasps actually, have a huge impact on controlling pest populations. Which is why when people say, oh, I've got a, a wasp nest in my in my loft or my shed, I'm going to have to get rid of it. And I say to them, well, if you get rid of it, you're going to have to probably end up using chemicals, you know, pesticides to kill the aphids on your plants in the garden because the wasps won't be around to, to do it for you for free. Um, and I think the more we remind ourselves that it might be a little bit inconvenient sometimes to have wasps flying around. They are doing, uh, we're trying to, you know, we should all be embracing moving away from the use of pesticides, particularly in our gardens. Um, we do, you know, we, we should be embracing these natural um, enemies uh, of pests that are around us. So some of the research that we've been doing recently is looking at the to what extent we can harness the power of these uh, of these wasps, these social wasps, um, as pest controllers. Um, and we did some experiments in Brazil with some collaborators there where we put uh, these Polistes wasps in a screen house um, and we gave them maize plants and sugarcane plants with the uh, sugarcane borer and the fall army worm, which are key economic global pests, crop pests. And the wasps, uh, when they were allowed access to the plants, they significantly reduced the levels of damage and the populations of pests on the plants. They, they didn't get rid of them completely. So social wasps will never be, but what they tend to do is they tend to cream off the most abundant of the insects that are around. So they will never hunt a, a, a prey to complete uh, extinction. You know, they won't, if you spray them with pesticides, you will kill all the caterpillars on your plants, but the social wasps won't kill all the caterpillars. They'll just keep them down. They'll regulate their populations to a manageable level, which is a much more eco ecologically friendly approach anyway. Um, so I think this is really, we were really um, excited and and we were we we speed we've been trying to progress this research, but then the pandemic got in the way. But actually, now what we're doing is we're 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 exploring the use of these social wasps, which are really abundant in in uh, tropical countries on all buildings. They'll be hanging from the eaves. Um, whether we can we can persuade uh, farmers, um, particularly subsistence level farmers who just literally have a you know a field, one field that they grow their own crops in that they've feed their family on for the rest of the year um, and they can't afford the um, safe ways of biocontrol um, and they end up spraying uh, and very, very bad uh, uh, 
very old uh, pesticides um, in the fields and it's often the women who spray it. There's a real um, equality issue here as well. It's not just an environmental issue. It's a, um, women often tend to be the ones who end up spraying the crops, um, because it's women's work and they often have a baby strapped to their back. So there's a huge, um, toxicity problem there. Um, so I think, you know, wasps could be a way of helping these, uh, subsistence level farmers in developing countries to regulate wasp to the populations of their prey. And so this is some of the stuff that we're working on at the moment. So when you're working on some of the projects you're doing now around experiments to try and understand the usefulness of wasps as uh, what we think of as kind of like natural uh, pest control or predative pest control, um, knowing the history of how humans have sometimes thought, you know what I'll do? I'm going to bring cats to New Zealand to help solve mm-hmm. this rat problem and then created a big new problem mm-hmm. um, with an invasive species. When we're doing research now, having those stories behind us and thinking about things like how can we use wasps to improve pest control, what does that feed into the way you run the experiments or the way you think about um, wasps or introducing wasps or picking which wasps might Mm -hmm. be useful to a particular area? Yeah, that's a really good question because there are there are wasps are very successful invaders. Um, so the yellow jackets, common yellow jacket wasp, Vespula vulgaris, uh, Vespula germanica, and the hornets actually quite a few species of hornets have been introduced around the world accidentally, um, and they have been incredibly successful because they're released from their natural predator, predators and uh, often in warmer climates so that their their colonies. Um, grow larger because they have a longer growing seasons or there's no winter to end the colony cycle. And they do call and the ecosystems are just not uh, adapted to deal with their their, their level of, of, of predation. Um, and so particularly pl- the places that have been particularly affected are places like New Zealand and South Africa and Argentina, where these yellow jacket wasps are a tremendous uh, problem. Um, and I think people have reason to not like wasps in those areas because <laughs> they completely um, alter ecosystems. But the types, so when I'm, but when I'm talking about harnessing the power of social wasps for pest control, I'm not suggesting that we introduce um, a species into an area where it's not found locally. The wonderful thing about the social wasps um, is that they are, particularly in the, in the tropics, that they are uh, diverse and abundant and they seem to be quite resilient to um, urban environments, urbanisation, because actually by building structures with overhanging eaves or bridges or, you know, anything that, that provides a little bit of shelter, that provides a really nice substrate for wasps to build their nests. And in fact, we often, one of my, all, practically all my favourite wasp field sites have been anthropogenic structures, which have typically being abandoned and then the wasps move in. Um, and so I think the fact that social wasps or many, most, lots of species of social wasps seem to be relatively resilient to the way that we are altering the environment, the, the landscape changes in land use in this respect. Um, and the fact that they are eating the very prey that we would otherwise use pesticides to get rid of. Um, I think as long as we're using our, you know, make the most of the species that are on your doorstep because they are your natural pest controllers. Those are the ones that are adapted to be able to hunt the species that are local to you and that are are, are likely to, to be a, a pest in your crops. 
So it sounds like uh, a lot of what you're thinking about is sort of showing the utility of the wasps on your doorstep, so to speak, and then probably the PR effort of showing that to people and saying, hey, if you stop knocking down these wasp nests or encourage some of them, actually, you might get a bunch of this pest control for free. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think a really nice um, analogy is how in, uh, in the US in particular, um, but actually not just the US, lots of parts of the world, um, farmers will move, they will ship honeybee hives from uh, from across countries to catch, to, to fit the pollination needs of the season at the time. So they will like chase the summer across the, the US pollinating. And so they're moving the what the bees to be where they're needed. And that's that's kind of a similar thing that we could be doing with wasps. Not maybe not moving them, but we can at least you can relocate wasp nests relatively easy easily. We you know people relocate bee swarms and bee bee nests. So we do the same with wasps. Um, and so if you can put wasps in a place where they're not as you know the wasp where, where they minimize the wasp human interface so they're not on your doorstep but but instead they're out in the field they're like at the other side of the field where your house is such that they are um, less likely to be literally on your doorstep so i think it's how we manage the wasps and how we try to work with them but in order to do, in order to do that we do need to have a really good understanding of their behavior of their life cycle um so for example you know you if you wanted to move some wasp nests and 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 you didn't realize that actually those nests are full of males and males don't hunt males are just flying sperm they're only there for a few days or week at the most and then they're gone and they die. They mate, they die. That's it. So if you have a nest full of, of males, they're going to be hopeless as biocontrol agents. So you have to make sure you've got the nest at the right stage in the colony cycle. And in order to do that, you have to have a good understanding, local understanding of your local wasps. So that's why everybody should be studying the wasps on their doorsteps. So just before we end, I want to give you the floor uh, for your PR efforts to make two pitches. The first pitches is for people who are listening, and we do have a bunch of listeners who are maybe in that wonderful point um, where they're deciding what science to pursue, potentially researchers uh, moving into careers as researchers. So I'd love for you to make a pitch for them on why maybe wasps are the thing they should study. And then I'd love to hear your pitch for the general population as like a takeaway, not just for our listeners, but also for our listeners to potentially pass on to the people in their lives who also probably don't like wasps. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. Uh, so for the first, um, so if anyone is thinking of a career in in the natural world, and in fact, everyone should be thinking about their careers as uh, impacting in a positive way on biodiversity, on the environment, learning more about natural history. So this should be on everyone's agenda. Um, wasps are an untapped reservoir of incredible science incredible discoveries. Not all of them will have obvious benefits to humans, perhaps not at first, but maybe maybe down the line they will. But unless we have those people who are driven by curiosity to take the time to observe what's 
appears to be the normal or the abhorrent, have a look at it, see what you can find. Um, that could be the nugget of the beginning of something rather marvellous. And I think there's a lot of marvels to be discovered in wasps, possibly more so than almost any other insect. Um, so yeah, go study wasps. And, and and as I said, it's it's a lovely field at the moment because there aren't that many people studying wasps. So there's so much to discover, and there's it's not a very competitive field. It's actually rather lovely, and all all the wasp researchers are lovely people. So um, yeah, so th so that's why you should study wasps. Um, the second one about the public, yeah. So actually, what I always say to people is, if you take one thing away from either reading my book or listening to me drone on about wasps for five too long it is that wasps are nature's pest controllers and that and they also pollinate i didn't even get a chance to talk about that and they're a source of uh, protein there are two billion people across the world who eat insects on a regular basis and wasps form an important part of those diets especially in parts of asia like J japanese people go crazy for wasps the larvae are very high in protein very low in fat they're a great source of nutrition entomophagy is the future don't eat beef eat insects um, <laughs> Um, so there are so there are so many things that wasps have to offer us, and I think um, in terms of their utility, we have we, there is much more that wasps have to give, and pest control, pollinators, sources of nutrition, medicine cabinets, their diversity, their their hunting strategies as assassins, they are untapped uh, un untapped worlds of of wonder and joy. Sarian, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it was a great book, and I can definitely tell you that uh, it has changed the way I think about wasps. I don't know that I personally, uh, I don't know that I, I like them more, or maybe I just dislike them less, but I can tell you my behavior has changed, which is probably <laughs> the thing you most care about. I no longer kill them if they're in my house. I do the same thing I do with bees is ensure that they leave my house. I usher them out the window or the <laughs> door rather than uh, swat them with a rolled up piece of paper. So um, there's at least one, one, person who's, one person whose behavior you've changed, and I hope <laughs> many you. more who read the book. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I'm sorry, I've gone on for far too long. <laughs> oh no, it's been lovely. And if you listening want to learn more about Sarian, her work, her book, or her mission to improve the human wasp relationship, we of course will have links for you to click in the show notes for this episode, which as always you can find in your podcast app or at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 